We continue our series on the book of James. Are you reading it? Read the whole book. Just read it over and over. It'll start sinking in. And uh, we're, as we do, we're learning lessons from this book, it's, which I call a practical manual for Christian living. I mean, many writers said that before me. But it's really about how to live Christ-like. James wrote it for that culture, but it certainly fits in ours. Today's message deals with a most important matter. An issue of eternal significance. And that is what constitutes salvation. I'm going to say some things that I think will be challenging from James. And what I hope, and I'll pray in a second, is that you will listen to what God wants you to know. As always, if I say something from me, you're always invited to dismiss what Perry says. But listen to what God says to you, speaks to you about this important issue. Father God, I pray that today you would open our minds, open our ears, that we could hear from you. Lord, I pray anything that I say in error, you'd remove from people's minds. But what your Holy Spirit speaks that they would cling to. Lord, today, show us ourselves that we will know whether we're truly in the faith. Remove our tendency to defend and excuse and deflect that we would have an encounter with you that's revealing of truth. In Christ's name, amen. Take out your outline. Now it's a little brochure. Mark Taylor does such a good job. I hope that you are using this beyond Sunday morning uh, by yourself or preferably with some others. Some small groups are using this to guide them through the week. But on the front of the outline is what I consider a startling verse. So you see, faith by itself What's it say? You don't believe that. Do you believe that, Dan? Faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It's what? It's dead and... You don't believe that, do you? Faith by itself isn't enough. I thought it was. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and it's useless. So how good are your deeds? Are they evident? Do they exist? James wrote to Jews. Remember the, the book in its original, to its original audience was a Jewish audience. Would have included the church in Jerusalem where he pastored and led but also to Jews in particular who were dispersed in other lands. But there were Jews who had converted to Christianity. So they confessed to be Christians. And so James is writing them this cautionary letter so that they could be sure they were saved. Nothing is more vital that we be sure that we're saved. So he asked them and us 
to examine their lives closely for evidence of conversion. Now, when I say the word conversion, I'm talking about being born again, being saved. These are all synonymous terms. You see, the genuineness of a profession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is supported more by what a person does than by what a person says he believes. Do you agree with that? In other words, put succinctly, what we do reveals who we truly are. Do you believe that? So is there integrity between how you identify yourself, what you say about yourself, and how you truly live? What we do reveals who we truly are. You see, acknowledging certain truths about Jesus is not sufficient for salvation. Now that ought to be startling. Without accompanying transformation, change, being born again by the Holy Spirit. A profession of faith that does not produce a changed life is not true faith. In James' words, it's dead. It's dead. In American culture, you know, there were benefits from being raised in the South. I, I mean, now me, I was born in upstate New York. You can tell by my accent. <laughs> but we were immersed in Sunday school and God's Word is, is not true, is true today, but two preceding generations. That was just a matter of being Southern. And even across our country, there was a lot of the gospel in the fabric of the culture. Even today, you'll hear movies and TV shows that are quoting something out of the Bible. I don't think they recognize the source of it, but it's actually biblical truth. But in our American culture, becoming a, or being a Christian is almost asserted as a civil right. I say, I have it, I have it. I say, I want it, I've got it. And it seems that merely not denying that God exists is the same as trusting in Him. Because we have adopted this shallow believism that is just whatever I assert is so. Not according to James. And James contrasted living and dead or false and true faith. So we want to be certain that our faith is living and, and true. It's eternally important. And that's why I'm asking you, drop your defenses. Ask God's Spirit to show you yourself. Where you truly stand. So today we're going to identify false faith. The first thing that false faith includes is words without 
works. We're in James chapter 2. James is toward the back of the New Testament. I urge you, bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, we sell them cheap. Buy a Bible. Spend some time in it. You can download them for free. So, you know, those of you with those fancy phones. Verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters? He cares about these people. If you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Now understand, he's writing to Jews, and and these Jews have been living under an oppressive, legalistic religion. They were striving to obey the law of Moses and the laws that are contained throughout the Old Testament. Supposedly there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. I didn't count them. I took that number from someone else. But it also included the oral traditions that interpreted the laws and told you how to obey them. I've given you this example that you know, you, you weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. So in hotels in Israel, there is an elevator in which you don't push any buttons. But that thing stops on every floor. So avoid the Sabbath elevator. But again, pushing the button, the button was considered work. So that's just one modern day application but there were lots of these or volumes of applications for what the law meant but the people were frustrated by that they knew they could not achieve perfection in their obedience and Jesus you know scolded these religious teachers and he said you just heap burdens on these people and you don't even help them obey So these Jews, after accepting the gospel of Jesus, they were relieved of this burden. And they knew, they they grasped quickly that good works were not necessary for salvation. Obeying all these laws, these rules and regulations, these oral traditions wasn't essential or necessary for salvation. It's true. However, they took it too far. I'm afraid we have as well. Because they also decided, you see, that obedience and righteous works were unnecessary for any reason. So they became what Paul calls lawbreakers. The theological word is antinomian. Anti-against, obviously. Nomos is law. So they were people who presumed on the grace of God to overlook their lack of spiritual effort and to forgive the sins that they willingly committed. Does that sound like American faith to any of you? I hear from even the young particularly young Christians that have so become so intoxicated by this shallow grace 
that they're deciding to live immorally and God will forgive them. That's a complete misunderstanding of the good news. Because the problem is, what is our attitude towards sin? That's like me saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to dishonor my wife, Leanne, and she'll forgive me. She may not, first of all. But how much love is there if I'm taking that attitude? You see what I'm saying? It's completely wrong thinking. I'm going to sin because I want to sin. And it's God's job to forgive me. And I didn't just misstate what I think is American Christianity. Not in every instance, of course. The faith that James referred to in this passage does include the basic truths of the gospel. The existence of God. Scripture as His Word has revealed will and intent. Jesus as His Messiah. Jesus' atoning death and resurrection. So when He talked about faith, He was including all the things that we would declare our components of faith today. He doesn't identify any particular action. Some of your translations say any works or, it, or deeds that, that must be performed. But the apparent meaning of this statement is, is that it's just righteous behavior that obeys God's revealed word motivated by a relationship with God, love for Him. Now, when James asked this question, can that kind of faith save anyone? The grammatical form of that question requires a no. Like if I said, do you, do you think I can pick up a ton? In the question is the answer. We do it with tone. In Greek, there was a, you know, the way the words were actually written. A profession of faith that is lacking righteous works, godly behavior, cannot save a person. Regardless of how strongly or sincerely that person proclaims his beliefs. You tracking with me? I'm not saying that you're saved by your actions. If you're hearing that, you're mishearing it. I'm not saying that at all. We are saved by God's grace alone. Because none of us could, could, through our actions, deserve to be justified. Because our actions would have to be perfect. So we're saved by God's grace, which is unmerited favor. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But our actions are evidence of our faith. Matthew 7, 20. We must be born again by the Holy Spirit. John 3, 3 and 3, 6. No one is saved who hasn't been born again. 
We must become new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Which means we're people who have been transformed so that we love God, so that we love people, so that we live like Jesus in ever-increasing ways. Salvation doesn't produce immediate perfection. So go ahead and sweep that away. I know some of you are already saying, well, nobody's perfect. It does produce a new direction in our lives and a new attitude toward our sin. There is a big difference between sinning willfully and presuming the forgiveness of God and sinning reluctantly out of our weakness and struggling to throw it off. You're facing a completely different way. When we're saved, we, we, we move. Now, we're declared perfect. We're decla- that's justice. But we're becoming more perfect. That's sanctification. As we move from self-centeredness to God and others' centeredness. So here's the first question. Hold up the mirror for yourself. Do your actions display true living faith? I can't answer that for you, you, but you must answer it for yourself. False faith also includes emotion without effort. James next compared he compared faith without works which is the first point to emotional words of compassion without any effort to assist James 2:15 Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing Now this this word didn't actually mean the person is starving and naked what it actually meant, because you can't translate one Greek word into one English word. But it, but it meant this person was lacking sufficient necessities for life. Because if we saw someone naked, I mean, today somebody take a picture and put it on the web. But we would give them something to wear. If we knew someone was actually starving, that would be so extreme, you know we'd provide food. So this is saying a person that you know is just struggling, is lacking sufficient necessities. And then verse 16. And you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? This is an uncaring response, isn't it? Reflecting disregard for the welfare of others. People don't usually say this, do they? They don't usually say, well, be well fed. Goodbye, you have a good day when they see someone in need. Stay warm, eat well. They don't don't say that, do we? But they display that sentiment by their absence of actions. By their 
selfish indifference to another person's needs. There are things we do say to people in need. What are they? God bless you. What did you say? I'll pray for you. And I'll do nothing else and probably won't pray. Unfortunately, this word, this phrase, I'll pray for you, really means in parentheses, I wish you'd get out of my face and leave me alone. Is that too harsh? I'll pray for you. It really means I got something else to do and you are uninteresting to me. Some of us really do pray. But do we go for the wallet is the question. Practical compassion. It's inconvenient. Every, while I'm saying this, somebody right now is burning in your head. And you know you want nothing to do with that person. Because that person is going to get stuck on you. And you're going to have to deal with them. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't have that attitude toward us? They're inconvenient. They might be costly. So we offer nothing. Except a glib, semi-religious phrase. Practical compassion, which is inconvenient and even costly is evidence of true salvation. Years ago, Roland Bergeron just harassed the fire out of me. He's sitting right there. He kept giving me books. One was The Hole in the Gospel. That was the name of it, wasn't it? And what he was saying was, okay, we're doing church well. We're growing big. We're doing a... What are we doing for the world? What are we doing for the poor? What are we doing for the disadvantaged? Was the theme of that book. And he was sweet about it, but he was irritating the fire out of me. Y'all know that phrase? He was right. See what I'm saying? How dare we build more buildings and care nothing about the community's suffering. How dare we? And the world's. See, here's the thing where some of us are. We, it's interesting to me how we can get so emotionally involved in a sentimental story from a movie or maybe in real life. I'm, I'm not on Facebook. I tweeted a little while and I got the heck off that too. Amen. But it's amazing to me that somebody will take a picture, a sentimental little picture of a dog, and it goes all over the world. Or someone's dog got hit by a car, and that goes all over the world too. Now, I care about dogs. But isn't it interesting how we pour our emotion into this stuff that has no real connection to us? Untimely death of someone we don't know, never did, never will. Well, won't let them die. Sort of live vicariously through the media. We hear about an injustice and we're outraged, but we don't do anything about it. 
So we hear about all these things that stir us up and we speak it and some of you forward it and, you know, do whatever you do. Instagram and Facebook and all those things. We forward stuff. We make signs, maybe. And we do absolutely nothing to relieve the suffering of a neighbor or acquaintance in close proximity. Absolutely nothing. And we're content with ourselves because we feel concerned. I mean, we'd never say we're uncaring. Someone might criticize us. We feel concerned. But we don't do anything constructive. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We're forwarding all these stories when next door someone's dying with cancer. When someone at work you know has no groceries. Are y'all feeling this? You know, we're trying to become a serving community. I don't, I'm not claiming it yet. But boy, we, we have made progress. And, you know, Mike's got a great idea. It may sound shocking to you that we, we're not going to do Serve Fest in the format we were doing it. Because, you know, it, it was a great rallying point for Brookwood. But it wasn't really serving the actual needs of the people and organizations. They were having to reschedule their lives even paying people overtime to accommodate us. We did some good things. But shouldn't helping somebody be on their terms instead of on our terms? See how different that feels? And here's the point. Here's, here comes my hard one. We get 1,400 people. There's more than twice that many sitting in this room today. This one in the other room. The other service. You see what I'm saying? We're celebrating small achievements. 32,000 cans was great. Some of us didn't bring any. Some of y'all have 10,000 cans in your pantry. You see my point here? What I'm saying is James says this matters. And I'm echoing him saying, this matters. And it's reflective of who I really am. Verse 17. So you see, faith or feeling, you know, concern by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and it's useless. Our sentimentality is useless. So here's the mirror. I'm holding mine up. You hold yours up. Does your faith compel you to respond practically to the needs you know about? If God revealed it to you, who's supposed to do something about it? You are. 
you are. False faith also includes belief without behavior. A third characteristic is recognition of certain facts about God and even His Word without surrender to either is false faith. James 2.18 Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. True faith always displays practical evidence. You believe that? How often do you think true faith displays practical evidence? Now, how? Answer me. Come on, answer me. How often does true faith express itself in practical ways? According to the Bible, how often? What's it say about you? Always. 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 Asserting a remembered experience of giving your life to Jesus, walking an aisle, being baptized. Maybe you did in a service, maybe at camp, when you were a kid. Even when you have a specific date and time, is not in itself proof of salvation. I'm not doubting the sincerity of your decision. We're not doubting children's sincerity, teenagers' sincerity at camp. We're not doubting sincerity. Sincerity doesn't necessarily yield salvation. Everybody tracking there? In this American gospel, it does. But it doesn't biblically. Rather... James is asserting that the only certain proof of salvation is the life you've lived since that profession was made. Now, you know what? You may have been saved at five when you, when you walked that aisle. I don't believe the majority were. That's just me. It's not from God. But it's sincere. But it didn't yield being born again. And unfortunately, particularly Southerners, but also Americans, are looking backward at some aisle they walked, some prayer they prayed, and they're being, unfortunately being told by pastors, see there, you're saved. Never doubt that. That is not a biblical doctrine. That is not a biblical doctrine. Verse 19. You say you have faith, for you believe there's one God. Or God is one. That's the Shema from Judaism, Deuteronomy 6.4. Good for you. That's sarcasm. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. That seems extreme, doesn't it? Believing the right things about God and faith, which is orthodoxy, correct belief is no guarantee of salvation you know I wasn't born again until I was 20 but when I was born again at the age of 20 as a senior in college my beliefs didn't change one whit 
about Jesus' identity, about who God was, not one whit. But I wasn't born again. Admitting and accepting what is true about God by itself is no better than the faith of demons, according to James. It seems insulting, doesn't it? Well, think about it. Demons know the truth. Demons are aware of God's identity. They know the Scripture is His expression of His will, His revealed will. They know Jesus is God's Son. They, they comprehend the process of salvation by grace through belief. They understand it was Christ's death that purchased forgiveness. But, but look what happens to them because they know it. What's it say? What did they do? What did they do because they know it? What do y'all see? Tremble. When's the last time a reflection on what Christ had done for you caused you to tremble? Greek word friso, what it means is to shiver, to shudder, to bristle with great fear. Because they know who God is and they know they're opposing him. Demons take God very seriously. They know torment is headed their way because of their disobedience. They know the truth. They just hate it. Matthew 8, 29, Mark 5, 7, Luke 4, 41, Acts 19, 15 are all passages where demons confirm the identity of Jesus. And in most of those instances where they know they're headed for destruction. Because they're just saying, it's not our time yet. Demons are more realistic and sensible than people whose by their false faith, by claiming some facts, believe they'll escape God's judgment. Just because they don't dispute what's true as truth. That's all, that's it. Verse 20. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Do your beliefs about God affect you emotionally, spiritually? Do they control your behavior? You know, you always do what you know to be true. Did you know that? You never vary from what you know to be true. That belief that's in you. The problem is that the belief may not be true. But whatever you believe will control your life. Do y'all believe that? Then James goes and he gives some illustrations of what true faith really looks like. His first example is Abraham. And I, I call this, these are my words, surrender without resistance. Verse 21. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown, he there is shown, to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions work together. His actions made his faith complete, complete, whole, consistent. His, his faith and his actions had integrity. You see? You can read this story. I, I give you the site there. It's in, it's in Hebrews. It's in Genesis. Abraham was, was much honored by Jews. But you know Abraham wasn't a Jew, don't you? 
Abraham was before Jews. The word Jew came from descendants of Judah. He didn't live for a long time. It's interesting that this particular verse really chapped Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, who lived in the 1400s. Because Martin Luther, though he was in training to be a monk and he was a lawyer and all that, he discovered that the just will live by faith. He discovered that salvation is by grace through faith alone. So verse 21 bothered him because the church argued that that displayed the need for works to receive salvation. And so he called James an epistle of straw because it, it, it appeared to open the door to salvation by works. I don't think it did, but that was, that was how he felt. So he much preferred the doctrinal writings of Paul. James wasn't dealing with the means of salvation at all. He was dealing with the outcome or the evidence that salvation had genuinely occurred. People weren't saved by keeping the law in the Old Testament any more than in the New. No one's ever been saved by keeping the law. Salvation's always been by the grace of God through faith. That includes Abraham, Moses, David, all of them. The law showed showed them that they fell short of God's righteousness. Abraham was shown to be right with God. Which didn't mean that Abraham offering Isaac caused him to be saved. It was evidence that he was saved. You see, the actions that James referred to occurred later than he'd already been received in relationship with God. God instructed Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22. Abraham obeyed immediately. Although it looked crazy that God would would ask him to do something so terrible, so awful. But he surrendered to God's direction without resistance. If If you look in Genesis, though, you'll see that he thought he was coming back with Isaac. If you read in Hebrews 11, he thought even if Isaac died, God would raise him from the dead. Abraham had no scripture. What church did he worship in? What do you think? None. There were none. There were no temples. There certainly were no Christian church. He was the son of a man that worshipped idols. Was he an idol worshiper too? We don't know. It doesn't say that. But he had little or no awareness of this Jehovah God. Jehovah is a transliteration for the name Yahweh, which is God's personal name. And there was no such thing as Jews yet. Well, how did he know? Well, let's read 23. And it so happened that just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God. And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. See, we've we've turned faith into something you do. You walk an aisle, you pray a prayer. Faith is dependence and reliance. He was even called the friend of God. Abraham believed that God would fulfill the covenant promises to give him a land, descendants or a people to to bless him. 
and to redeem, bless and redeem the world through him. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And Moses didn't earn it. It was something that God counted him as righteous. It was something God did for him. He just depended on what he'd been told. Do you know what? That's all our faith is. We've been told Jesus died and his death is sufficient for us to be forgiven. Your faith is just saying, I believe that's true. Do you know that? And it's not saying it because you got no other resource. Recourse. My life is hanging in the balance on that what I've been told Jesus did is true. That's the sum total of your faith. It's the sum total of Abraham's. He believed the promises of God. And this was well before he even offered Isaac, see. It was well before Isaac was born. Verse 24. So you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. And then he used another one. Well, let me ask this first. Okay, what about you? Here's the question from Abraham. Do you surrender to God's word without resistance? Even though it might mean you lose something you love. Possessions, position, your identity. But you know God says behave this way. Are you going to do it or are you going to offer excuses? The evidence of faith from Abraham is that when God says it, we do it. Another illustration of true faith was Rahab. Service without reservation is what I call it. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. See, again, you can read in Joshua chapters 2 and 6 about the original time that happened. You can read in Hebrews. It tells about Abraham. It tells about, you know, it's it's called the Hall of Fame, but Rahab's in there. Rahab was a Gentile and a prostitute and an innkeeper who lived in Jericho A pagan land. How did she know? No Bible. No believers. Except from God himself directly. That's how you were saved. By God himself directly. You know anything about that, Glenn? That's the way it happens. Joshua sent two spies. He took over from Moses to check out Jericho. Remember they were going to go capture that land. It was the land of Canaan. These spies showed up at Rahab's house on the city wall. Her, her inn was connected to the wall. The king heard about these two men going in who were not from Jericho, and he sent some others to go and arrest them. She hid them on the roof of her house under a stack of flax. When the men arrived, she said, Oh, no, those guys have already gone, and if you hurry, you can catch them maybe. But then she told those men about her belief in God, She asked them to spare her life because she knew God was going to destroy the city and spare the lives of her family. And then she lowered them through the window in the wall by a rope. Read that story. Fascinating. Rahab acknowledged that the Lord of Israel was the supreme God. How did she know? With all the idol worshipers and all the pagan religion that she was, that's where she lived. 
Uh-uh. She knew from God. And she displayed that belief by hiding these men. And it could have cost her her life. That's how, that's how tenaciously she believed in who was the real God. When Jericho was destroyed, Rahab and her family was saved. They were spared. And Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, the Gentile from the pagan land was placed by God in the lineage of Jesus Christ. You know how you do these uh, ancestry? You can send in your blood for a hundred bucks and they'll tell you who you are. If we took Jesus' blood and sent it to ancestry, some portion of him was from Jericho because of Rahab. Verse 26, just as the body is dead without breath or without the spirit, literal translation, same word, so also faith is dead without good works. Faith without action, words without deeds, is as dead as a corpse. Do I serve God without reservation, even though it may be costly. That's conviction, isn't it? Soul training this week is this question. Is the faith I profess evident in my life? Folks, I say this as your pastor. Please don't run past this this message today. Not what Perry said, but what God said to you. This question is of eternal Importance. There's not a more important question. Reflect on it. Pray through it. There'll be counselors here at the front. There'll be counselors in the care connection room that would talk to you about it. But this 2 Corinthians 13, 5, I close with this. You know how in our culture people say, well, don't doubt your salvation. You know you prayed that prayer. You know that walked that aisle. Mm -mm. That's not what Scripture says. Here's what Scripture says. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you, more literal, and most translations say, is in you, or is living in you. Surely Jesus Christ is in you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. Please, I implore you, examine this issue in your life. It's of utmost importance. Father, we thank you for your word. But Lord, we need your spirit to reveal us what's true. God, let people just dismiss and discount whatever I've said. But Lord, cause them to cling tenaciously to you. Let us all see ourselves, our true spiritual state. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming.